Welcome to The Label Podcast, a show about disability, illness and difference. I'm Lucy. And I'm Alice. And that's Don't forget, in this episode, I might swear, Lucy might cry, and you can check out details of the trigger warnings on our website. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Label Podcast. This is another part of our special Autism Awareness Week series that me and Lucy have been working towards for a while, which I think, despite some technical difficulties, is going all right yeah, so far. not too bad. It's a bit taxing for a Saturday afternoon, but there we go. We're all right now. Everybody's here. It's fine. Yeah, do you think, do you think perhaps I should have uh, waited until we were a little <laughs> bit more settled and on our feet before I decided to tackle a five-day-long project? Yes, yeah. we live yeah. and we learn. It's, it's fine. You can, yeah. yeah, you guys can all get me back <laughs> later, I'm sure. So we've got a guest who is somebody that I met and have been following on Twitter for a while, um, Ira, who is here to talk to us about their experience of autism. So Ira, do you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. So I am a late diagnosed uh, autistic person. I found out I was autistic Um in my second or third year of graduate school um and so i found i kind of stumbled upon it in a weird way um so I'm, on twitter i'm autistic science person and i started writing about it because i like i just kind of needed to write about it to process it mm -hmm. and then i realized this would be useful to um you know people who maybe don't know they're autistic or who are also going through you know figuring out whether they are or not or just anyone who stumbles upon it and goes, oh, I really related to that. You know, I, I had a few comments um, on my blog post saying, I really relate to that. I've, you know, I don't know if I'm autistic, but this is really interesting and yeah. they might look into it further. So um, I kind of just by happenstance decided to make a blog and started writing about processing all of that stuff. Mm. Um, well, you're not so the first guest that we've had on who sort of said they kind of stumbled upon their diagnosis as an adult I think it's it's partly because people are becoming more aware of autism but yeah we've had somebody on previously who was uh, doing a job as a support worker for disabled students at university did a session about uh, learning about autism and I think within 18 months had an Asperger's diagnosis because she sort of said hold on a minute this is this is me yeah for me, it was kind of, I just like researching things. So <laughs> yeah. I literally just stumbled upon a YouTube video that was like, you know, something about Asperger's. And they, you know, it was a person who talked about the questions they would ask someone and they kind of went through it. And by the third question, I was like, but that doesn't make sense. How does this work? Yeah. Like, why? <laughs> I, I, I was, my response was like the ant, like this is what would happen if you're autistic. This was the answer you'd give, and I'd be like, why is that not the correct answer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's what started the whole thing. <laughs> so, um, I you were saying, um, 
earlier about how you um, set up your blog to sort of help come to terms with it. Um, I I actually did. I wouldn't say that I I use my blog to 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 come to terms with my disability. Um, but I, what I did was I, I I blogged about my life as a wheelchair user, and suddenly discovered everybody was either sort of going, oh, I understand a bit more now, and things like that. I, so I wouldn't necessarily I did I didn't come to terms with anything, but I did definitely. It was a kind of an education process. How how has blogging about um autism uh, you know being autistic helped helped you is it kind of like getting it all out on the page makes you feel very therapeutic yeah so it started out i mean i was writing i didn't really start the blog like i was writing a lot before i started it um and not like i didn't put everything on the blog or anything anything but like especially when i found out about masking yeah. and autistic masking is when i kind of that's when i was like oh no one knows about this and i don't really you know i was like learning about it myself and like that i've i literally learned to do that growing up mm. as like this is what i need to be for others mm. and i just kind of intuitively knew that because of the way people treated me when i wasn't yeah. being like you know i was like oh well this is how i get people to listen to me or this is how i get people to not pay attention to me right like i wanted to be like the invisible person because i'd rather have that than negative attention yeah, yeah. and so it was that was like my strategy but i didn't realize anything about like masking or that like for example like even growing up people would say oh well what's your opinion and i was like i thought you had to like analyze and like give facts mm. like i didn't even know that you could have an opinion and that would be like enough mm. because i thought i had to argue my way to a point and i couldn't just have like my own version of something <laughs> like that's how weird my brain was it was like oh okay so you're asking me for information where yeah. do i go get that and they're like no like opinion i I, I wasn't, it wasn't you. <laughs> no, whereas Lucy and I work entirely uh, on our own opinions <laughs> and ignore facts altogether until people come along yeah. and go, no, that's completely wrong. Like There's a bit like believing you can sing, really, isn't it? Like, I can sing. I can <laughs> sing. And then somebody hears me and goes, no, really, you can't. Shush. You can't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. I am. I mean, I know for me, when I'm, when I'm particularly, um, wound up or angry about something and I write it down in a blog sometimes I don't even have to post it um but getting it right. down and writing it down because nobody can interrupt me when I'm when, it, when it's a blog post is it it's like them you yeah. you're choosing to read it if you don't like what I've written you just like switch it off and forget about it but it was it is very therapeutic for me really yeah, so I write about stuff sometimes and I don't even I'll perhaps sit on it a day if it's something slightly controversial um before i hit post sometimes i don't even do that but it is very helpful do you find writing and things sort of good for you in general oh for sure and i always like wrote even like in especially growing up like as a teenager i would write you know like the angsty poetry yeah. stuff yeah. <laughs> i did a lot of that and honestly it was like and doing that and playing music kind of like got me through yeah being a teenager like getting through like junior high and high school with like you know being autistic and all that um but yeah to an actually answer the original <laughs> question <laughs> um, 
for me, so the blogging initially was like me processing my diagnosis, like not even diagnosis, but finding out I was autistic in the first place. And then like, eventually I was like, oh, this seems to be also helpful to people yeah. who want to understand us. And there were people commenting and like sharing that stuff. And so then it started to be like, here are things neurotypical people can do to like help autistic people. And then I started getting into like, social media more and then found there are a lot of parents who like started asking me questions and stuff and so I write some things that are more pointed towards parents but it's always like help like there are plenty of autistic adults who comment and they're like this would be really helpful for literally any autistic person but like it's just framed as like parent and child so that like parents go yeah. to the resource mm. um, but so I have kind of like a mix of those things of like this is how like neurotypical people interpret autistic adults and what it's like to be an autistic adult. And then like my own like processing of autistic masking and burnout and like identity formation, right? Like you have to reform your identity when you find out you're autistic because it's like your life like plays backwards mm -hmm. over several months and you realize like, oh no, that's what happened. Like this is what happened in that interaction and this is why they responded that way or this is why I thought I had to like be a human or whatever or pretend and and when I went out or something mm. or this is why <laughs> you like you just start learning so many things like for example I didn't know that like I have hyperacusis which is very likely associated to being autistic like genetically um even though it's not really well researched um but that's like the the most recent theory or whatever um and I thought that everyone had pain with loud noises mm. and that they were all pretending yeah. also so I had to like pretend not to like mm. look somewhere if I heard a sound because no one else heard it mm. and then if there was like a bus passing by I had to like pretend not to flinch because I'll like like blink or like mm. close my eyes um and I thought everyone did that because we're always taught that our brains work the yeah. same way mm. So that's one of my goals is to be like, people's brains don't work the same way and we don't talk about it. And that's why this happens. And that's why like, we have to pretend to not be in pain yeah. basically. And it's reinforced because when you tell someone like, oh, I don't like the sound, they just think you're, that you don't like it. Mm -hmm. But like, I didn't have the words to say, this really hurt my ears physically. Like, it feels like a knife is stabbing my eardrum. Like, I couldn't say that because I was just like, everyone, this happens to everyone, <laughs> right? Like, I think it's, there's a lot of overlap with um, people's sort of experience of mental health there as well, is that particularly if you have a trauma or something that happens to you as a child, you just grow up and that is, it's not until somebody points out to you that, that's not how everybody else functions or that's not how everybody else copes that's you know not necessarily a healthy behavior that you kind of go wait not everybody cries themselves to sleep at night or something like that you know whatever it is <laughs> so I think you know what you're doing with your blog and stuff like that is even if it is just encouraging people to ask those questions and not not give people those weird looks and go what do you mean it hurts your ears but actually sort of stop and say okay well tell me about that and be open to the difference of experience, regardless of whether that experience is caused by neurodiversity or mental health or disability. Can I just say as well that um, I have cerebral palsy. I'm saying that for Ira's benefit because Ira won't know. Um, 
but um, yeah, so I've got cerebral palsy. So, and, and a side effect of the cerebral palsy is startle reflex. So I will jump at any loud noise. Um, if we were to sit quiet for five minutes now and then somebody go, all right, Luce, I'd probably jump out of my skin. When, when we log on to Squadcast, which is our podcast recording, you might have heard that noise that it plays to let you know that you're in the recording room. Every time that goes off, it makes me jump out of my skin. And for years, I thought that was just me. And then I met somebody else with cerebral palsy who I now work with. And she went, no, no, that's a, that's a, that's a disabled person. <laughs> that's a cerebral palsy. Oh, uh, you wow. know, when, and when you meet somebody that goes, actually, no, I have that too. You think, oh, okay, that is just me being weird. And just, do you know what I mean? It's yeah. that kind of, yeah. you realize that it's not just your brain being an idiot, making, a, making you look foolish. Nearly every time I post about hyperacusis, because that's what the term is, right? Pain with loud sounds. Nearly every time I post that on Twitter, I'll get a reply going, thank you for letting <laughs> me know what that wording is. I was trying to, I have this, but I don't know what it is. And, you know, it's from, it's not even, all, it's not all autistic people, obviously. Like, people with hearing loss can have hyperacusis. Um, mm. People with ADHD will post and say, oh, I have that too. I'm not autistic, but I have that too. And like, you know, people with sensory processing disorder, all these other, all these other people have, who have disabilities will, <laughs> will be like, I've never heard of this because no one talks about it. And mm. it's just, it's, I'm sure they appreciate that, but I feel like I should every week just say, this is what hyperacusis <laughs> is. This uh, is your weekly reminder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Public service <laughs> announcement. Tell your friends. Do you also as well sort of get a bit like too noisy? Just like, okay, just, just everybody be quiet. Just, that's because I get that a lot. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I wear ear protection since so i had a huge anxiety with sounds and like going out like if i go out of my even out of the house like growing up like because i never knew if i was gonna have to mm -hmm. be in pain mm. like i never knew if i had a paper out right like i didn't know the environment and so like i just went in being like i don't like i had this fear of being in pain and since since like accommodating that and wearing ear protection and just having it like not even necessarily always wearing it but having it when i go out so that I know if something, if there's a loud sound, I have, I can put my headphones on. I have my emergency earplugs in my pocket. Um, that's been huge for me. Like probably the biggest thing since finding out I was autistic was like dealing with my hyperacusis and accommodating myself. And like my anxiety has gone significantly down, like just because of that, because I was constantly concerned like every day that I'd have to run into a loud noise. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the things definitely in my experience of um, disability is that understanding your own anxiety and taking like positive proactive steps to kind of protect yourself that can that is can really fundamentally help with your um, you know anxiety for me. It was about for a really long time not accepting that because I'm blind, I need a mobility aid because I have got some sight. And for years, I just risked it. And I look back and I think I could. I'm amazed I didn't end up in a really terrible accident. And so getting to that point where I went, I need to have some kind of assistance or support for getting out and about independently. As soon as I started doing that, I suddenly just felt so much more at ease going outside yeah. it's it's that the, the 
the fear of going out was a lot more crippling to me than actually my disability was. I think as well that um, my my disability, I get kind of, I, until recently, I think, I think it's being in the lockdown and not having to go out as much that I've realised that sometimes when I go out independently, which isn't very often because I always need some sort of help, so I've 99.9% of the time I've always got somebody with me, but if somebody says, oh, I'll go into this shop and I'll beat you, like, in the cafe or something, and I'm on my own, I'm constantly thinking, like, oh, my, what if I, you know, what if I drop something, what if I can't, my, what if I let myself stop? It's like those silly little scenarios in your head will play out, and so I have to kind of, like, think about, like, where am I going to sit? Who am I, how am I going to do it? And once I've done that, once I've sort of had a word with myself, it's kind of, my brain calms down. It's almost like I need to think it all through before, do you know what I mean? Before I actually do anything. It's, yeah. it's quite, the brain is a weird little thing, isn't it, really? Yeah, and um, going back to, you know, noticing that you have anxiety or yeah. you have these problems, like, that's the other thing is a lot of autistic people um, have alexithemia, which means we have trouble like recognizing and labeling emotions, especially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, like if someone asked me how I was feeling, I would be like, I don't know. <laughs> like I literally didn't know how yeah. I was feeling. I have to ca- I check my pulse sometimes because if I, I'm like, I feel off, but I don't know what, like yeah. I don't know what the feeling is. So like I'll check my pulse or I'll like, see if I have, like, stomach pain, like, maybe I haven't eaten, like, I have a checklist of things that I go through to, like, determine it, because once I do the thing that makes me feel better, I'll go, oh, I feel a lot better. A lot of times, I'm, like, too warm or something, and I don't realize it for half an hour, and I'm, like, I'm really annoyed right now. What's going on? I'll take my jacket off, and it takes a half an hour for me to recognize (laughs) this. I'll take my jacket off, and I'll go, oh, I feel a lot better. It's just too warm. Yeah. Like, my body doesn't recognize that signal. Yeah, that's really interesting, because I when you guys were looking about like blogs and writing I was thinking I wish I'd done that it sounds like it would have been much cheaper than the hundreds and hundreds of pounds that I've spent on therapy yeah. over the years talking to people way, who have been paid that is the way I look at it to be honest you know it, to me it just calms yeah. my brain down and then when I do, if I do post anything and I get a response that goes oh yeah I get that it's kind of like okay all right I'm not I'm not odd yeah. One of the things that I had to do a lot of work in in therapy over the years is learning about kind of naming emotions. Yeah. And so it's so and I know how difficult that can be to be able to sort of go, okay, well I'm you know, why am I feeling really anxious? I'm feeling really anxious because I know I've got to go to the pharmacy to pick up my prescription, but i that means going outside and I haven't got a mobility aid or whatever mm-hmm. it is I need. And being able to kind of unpick that, it's taken me a lot of work. But that's the idea for me that you may also experience that in sort of for physical stimulus. I mean, I can I can see why that would get really overwhelming. And it is quite an alien concept for somebody who doesn't have that issue to, you know, it's it's a little bit like when you've got a small baby and you kind of go, oh, they're too, yeah. they're crying. Yeah. Why are they crying? Are they too, too hot? Do they want to feed? Do they need the nappy changing? Are they just grumpy? But to have to almost do that guesswork for yourself, I yeah. can imagine as well that's probably quite sort of emotionally fatiguing. It's a lot of cognitive resources, and it's, it's you have to remember to do it. It's also that's also the issue, right? Because there's some people who have executive functioning. Uh, issues when they're Mm. autistic and so like 
a lot of times like I can forget to eat if I'm working until my stomach actually hurts like physically hurts and is growling at me and I'll be like oh I guess I and so I have to it's just like more things to kind of do mm. every day mm. <laughs> like more mental notes and it's similar to what you said Lucy about you know making sure you look at yeah. everything and you know where you're going and how to maneuver a space before it's the same kind of thing where it's like I have to do this to to like know what I'm feeling and to like make everything yeah. okay basically once I mean you, you said earlier about your diagnosis being while you were at grad school is that right um so I found out I was autistic during grad school it took me six months to find someone who worked with adult autistic women because at the time I wasn't out of non-binary but even if I was out of non-binary honestly I still would have probably looked for someone who worked with adult autistic yeah. women just mm -hmm. because like there's not there's not someone who's gonna list like adult autistic non-binary people <laughs> like that's not even on you know diagnostic radar they got they have white men they got white yeah. women yeah <laughs> and that's about it so yeah yeah people have a lot of trouble with those crossover identities don't they it's, you don't fit in this one box how am i supposed to treat you uh, the thing i wanted to ask ira was how was it all because we speak to a lot of people don't we alice about how you know, their diagnosis later in life, it was kind of a bit more, a bit like a flicking a light switch and it was like, a, oh, a relief kind of feeling. Did you feel the same thing? It's not something me and Lucy have experienced because we both have known, you know, since as long as we can remember, we know have un, sort of comprehended to the age appropriate abilities that we had a disability. So to have that unexpected diagnosis or you know unexpected diagnosis you know a welcome diagnosis I can I yeah mean, I can see how yeah, it I would mean, be was it a welcome diagnosis or, or did you spend a lot of time yeah it was I mean at the time I didn't know what it was but like for me I kind of hyper focused yeah. on it for like until I got like an official diagnosis because I just didn't know I didn't really know anything about like the disability community at the time too mm. so when I found out I like I found, um, I really like the book um, Nerdy, Shy, and Socially in Inappropriate by Cynthia Kim. That really confirmed for me because it was like more about her processing. I think she was late diagnosed too. I'm not, I th and it was like her processing her late diagnosis and uh, about her life. And I could just read it and I was like, yes, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> like this is it. Even though the whole time I was like, oh, well, I don't have an official diagnosis. And it was also tough because I was taking classes at the time. And because I didn't have an official diagnosis, I couldn't get accommodations. I, I had to, I, ex I explained to a, a professor once that um, not knowing the format of an exam that we were having, we had, we had an oral exam and she wouldn't tell us the format of, the, I said, oh, this is really anxiety inducing for me. And she didn't understand what I was trying yeah. to say. Mm. And she was just like, oh, you're fine on the midterm written exam, so you'll do fine. And I had a panic attack slash shutdown. I honestly don't, I think I might've, it might've been both mm. <laughs> during, the, during the exam. And she felt terrible, but like, I couldn't explain, like if I had said the word autism, it wouldn't have made a difference. You know what I mean? Like, cause people don't no. know what it means. <laughs> so yeah. that was the other reason. I, I really started writing about it and like putting it out because I was like, if I tell people this, they're just going to go, oh, well, you're so smart. Like I would never have known. Or I've heard um, you're, you're, you must be really high functioning, you know? Mm. Um, and it's like, you've seen me in 
a very specific environment and not like in any other context and you've only like if I have a meltdown or shutdown I'm just gonna go to the bathroom like I'm not gonna go hang out next to you you know (laughs) so it's hard to get people to understand that and so I didn't really disclose until very late with my advisor when I I was already comfortable with her and she it she already she even knew before me about like my auditory sensitivity stuff yeah like she was like yeah I remember you know like she she knew I had really good hearing and she would even ask if like she was doing something loud like do you mind if I do this right now like she would ask me that ahead of time Mm. so I I was very lucky in the sense that like she understood that without me having to kind of say oh well I'm autistic and this is what this means you know Mm. like it was just um it was more supportive than a lot of graduate students I was um, just gonna say that I mean it sounds you know Again, we've talked to a couple of people on both mine and Lucy's own experiences of academics and higher education. It's not always the most supportive place for disabled people. So it's really nice to hear a good story (laughs) of somebody who had a good experience. I've been very lucky. And even, for example, like presentations and stuff, um, I was I once asked her, like, can I just like write all of my what I'm going to say, like into my notes? Like, is that okay? Like, I didn't think that was okay. And she's like, yeah, that's fine. Mm. I was like oh thank god (laughs) you know it's like I don't know what I would do without um having some sort of script or more more structured kind of like presentation if I'm doing something yeah that's really interesting uh do you think you know your your diagnosis helped to kind of get you through getting through the your grad degree do you think you'd have your degree now if I had not gotten, if I had not figured out I was autistic by the time I did, I would have burnt myself out even more. Mm. I was considering going to a therapist for anxiety mm. about in my second year of grad school because I was so stressed out. I was overworking myself, like not even like in a productive, efficient way, in just a way of like, I'm a grad student, so I must do all these things no matter what. And like, I was like always tired because I also have a sleep disorder that was diagnosed around the same time. Um, I found out I was autistic, like, a few months after that. So it was just a mess. And I'm so if I hadn't gotten that, I honestly think I either would have... I didn't go to the therapist because I was too anxious to go to a therapist. And I am so happy that I didn't do it because I would have been yeah. diagnosed with yeah. generalized anxiety. I would have not known anything else, and I would have just continued on burning yeah. myself out. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, because I suppose... You know, the anxiety wouldn't have addressed the the masking and stuff, would it? It would have just right been there to. Also, tr- like if I say, it also even for some people, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy has been helpful, but like a lot of times they don't take our sensory sensitivities mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. account, so they just say, "Oh, well, you should talk to people more, or you should go out more and expose yourself to like new environments or something to get used to it." And it's like my brain does not do that. <laughs> not <laughs> it doesn't work not that a way. fan of CBT personally it's just it's two broad strokes and as you say it's about behaviors it's not about no no not a fan personally cbt has been helpful for some people for like phobias Mm. and like very specific anxieties that are that are like you know more like irrational but i think i wrote something about um you know autistic anxiety uh recently and it was about the fact that like we can't we don't we can't predict what neurotypical people are going to do 
when we are acting around them like without masking yeah. mm. like also like how they're going to interpret our tone of voice like how they're going to expect us to act or like what they're going to expect us to say and if we don't say it the right way like how they're so so the issue for me is like I have anxiety because neurotypical people are unpredictable around my body language and my mm. tone of voice it's mm. not that I'm anxious about what they'll think of me. It's that I don't know. I won't be able to assess no. the situation like in the moment. Mm. Um, like I won't even know what's going on. And then I'll I'll analyze it like two hours later and go, oh, that's what was happening. And I didn't realize it. Or I didn't realize like this person was like trying to make eye contact with me the whole time. And that's why I was stressed out. Mm. Um, it's one of the things that um, really kind of gets gets to me is this, the way that people don't aren't very good at recognizing the disability that you can't see, you know, the yeah. the the hidden disability, um, because and and understanding the huge that just because somebody on the outside can't see it doesn't mean that a person experiencing it and living it doesn't have a huge, you know, doesn't impact them in a huge way. Because you know what you were saying about the, that unpredictability of of people. For me, it's that unpredictability of an environment. If even if I'm somewhere familiar, if I don't have something to guide me, you know, at my assistance dog or whatever, then I have absolutely no idea if somebody's just. I've literally, you know, walked down streets where people have just decided to lift up paving stones, and so I've suddenly dropped. And it's only you know two inches. But you suddenly drop two inches unexpectedly, and that is enough to make you go, that was yeah. terrifying, I'm really, I'm shaken, yeah. I'm scared, I want to go home, I don't ever want to walk down the street again, I don't ever want to walk down any street, I want to stay at home forever. And, you know, it's, it is that unpredictable, not being able to predict. For me, you know, sitting here, I feel like the environment is slightly more predictable, perhaps, than people, because, you know, I am as far as my understanding goes i am neurotypical and i even you know on a daily basis go oh i didn't expect that to say that yeah. you know <laughs> so for you to be having that experience is you know tenfold and i think as well as somebody who has got a, a very clear and visual representation of i am disabled because i am in a wheelchair i think what a lot of people don't seem to grasp as well from from my sort of perspective is that just because I am in a wheelchair and my legs don't work that is not the only extent of my disability do you know what I mean so the problem isn't yeah. my legs my legs don't work as a byproduct because my brain is wired you know the the, the wiring's not quite function firing on all cylinders and so people look at look mm. at me and go oh well her legs don't work but there is a lot of um, things that my brain struggles to comprehend and, and, and deal with. So like numbers, can't do numbers, logic. Um, sometimes my memory is a bit foggy. <laughs> this week in particular, the amount of meetings me and Alice have had where I've gone, sorry, what, what are we doing this week? Because I've got complete brain fog. But yeah, so people look at me and think, well, her, her, it's just her legs that don't work. And actually the, the true extent of my disability is not just... My legs don't work because it is it is all in my brain where it's not quite right. You know what I mean? Absolutely. People people don't seem to understand that you can have like yeah. more than one yeah. disability. Mm. And 
I wanted to talk about the hit like invisible disabilities because it's weird to me that people think they can see autism like they can see when someone's autistic because that's what people that's what we get right when we say we're autistic it's like you yeah. don't look autistic it's like mm-hmm. you're not walking back and forth in a corner and holding your ears mm-hmm. that's that's what they mean <laughs> or you're yeah. not headbanging it's like yes I am not a child <laughs> I'm not currently a child and I don't do those things I might hit my head, you know, when I have a meltdown in a bathroom that no one sees, but sure, <laughs> like, I don't look autistic no. to you, sure. Um, yeah, it's, um, there's other things, like, yeah, like, I have a physical disability, I have pain in my foot yeah. when I walk, and so, like, I have a limited number of steps during the day, mm. and I can injure it, like, at any moment, basically, mm. if I don't walk correctly. And people see me and go, oh, you look like you're walking just fine. Why are you carrying crutches with you? Yeah. Like, because I might need them. Or like, why are you carrying a bag of shoes around? Because I might need them, you know? And it's like, so, but that's physical. And like, people don't think that physical disabilities can be invisible either. But like, pain and fatigue don't have a look. And when you're used to it, it's like, your face isn't going to look like you're in pain constantly, 24-7. Like, Mm -hmm. that's not how chronic pain works. I mean, I, I've said before on the show how I cannot leave the house with my guide dog without somebody saying, asking me if I'm training her because I'm in my 30s and I can make eye contact <laughs> with people and I can look around. And so I could, I couldn't possibly be blind. And I, yeah, I can remember having a conversation in a supermarket and a lady asking me if I could read like asking me to read something for her she was an elderly lady and I went I'm sorry I can't see that and she went what with your young eyes and I was like I mean I can ask a dog <laughs> but it's not I don't think that's going to help either of us and it was just there's people also I think have that expectation of well if if you've got you know if I say to people I'm blind people go okay I understand that that means she can't see there's no room for movement as Lucy was saying with you know it's 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 just her legs and can't be any anything else and I think people have that same you know people have an idea of what autism looks like and I think a big issue I do I work in health and social care and I work with a lot of people who live in residential care and young people who have got severe autism but for a lot of those people autism is not their only diagnosis and so the the presentation of people that you see with very severe autism usually means they've also got other cognitive impairments learning difficulties physical impairments whatever it is and people go oh well that that's what an autistic person looks like that's what an autistic person does whereas actually what an autistic person does is very person specific is very varied because it is a spectrum and as you say is of course hugely impacted by any other personal needs and just kind of quirks of personality yeah i just want to clarify real quick on the term like severe autism like functioning labels generally aren't helpful like Mm. and and that you mentioned why is because there's the people who are told that they have severe autism are just autistic and have other disabilities yeah including you know like autistic and intellectual disability or autistic and have seizures or Mm -hmm. dyspraxia or 
motor speech impairments or like any other kind of combination of things mm. and so like when people think of autism they think of autism and intellectual disability and seizures mm. <laughs> and it's like that's that's not yeah. what autism is though like it's it's separate from those things and like we can also give agency and autonomy to people who are autistic and have other co-occurring disabilities and who need support yeah. and like they're not mutually exclusive you yeah. know like I, it's not that i need no support and that like you know other people with disabilities don't, can't do anything like that's not like yeah. the scale of autism well that's and i mean that's sort of what my job in social care is is about advocating and ensuring that people's voices are heard in you know decisions about treatment and care and stuff like that and i i'm definitely aware that because of the profession i work in i have a tendency to use those more kind of medicalized languages and you know i fall into the trap that i was just kind of complaining about i know that i have the tendency to 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 do that so um you know i appreciate you kind of pointing it out because it is something that's that is one thing that we try really hard to do on this show is sort of say to people just because this is what your experience even if it you're talking about your experience of disability or whatever it is it is always more complex and it is always related to a specific person and all of the things that combine to make them who they are i think that goes across the board and in every sort of disability whether you're blind you know use a wheelchair it's a cerebral palsy autistic whatever it is that every disability is a huge beast and there's no like I think we have the media to thank for, oh, this is what a person who has cerebral palsy looks like. Oh, this is what a person who is blind looks like. Oh, this is what a person who is autistic looks like. That's, I think, because it becomes so embedded in people's brains that they go, oh, yeah, I, I know exactly mm-hmm. what an autistic person looks like. Or I know exactly what a cerebral, you know. Um, well, actually, I have grown up r- around people with c- countless disabilities that you go, well, actually, yeah, I've got cerebral palsy, but my friend has also got cerebral palsy and it doesn't affect his legs, it affects his arm. He can still play darts 100 and stuff. So you wouldn't necessarily look at him and go, oh, he's got cerebral palsy, but he has, because I know know that because he's told me. So yeah, I think that that, it's that whole representation thing and it was what I was saying in a in a episode earlier this week to do with the autism awareness week. You know, for me, I am a media student graduate, so I am quite passionate about representation in the media and things. And actually, when I look at how the media treats people with disabilities, I just feel very disappointed and very sad because it's like you've just let me down there, really. You know, we. The, the media time and time again has a fantastic opportunity to show what it's really like and they just choose the stereotypical label of okay we want somebody who's autistic we'll go with this character with these traits because that's what everybody can identify as and it's it's quite sad for me really i think that's the case across the board with any kind of minority diversity though you know there is unless unless you're a white man um and preferably a straight white man then you you don't get to have those complexities i mean i'm sure you know being non-binary that you have had people asking you ira if 
if you think that there's been a you know there is a connection between your gender identity and your autism and you know it's, I can imagine that that would be the sort of it's almost laughable to say that I mean of course your autism impacts on your processing of your personal feelings and emotions but if you were born into a body that is you know your gender is is different from that that you were initially identified with that that's not related to your processing at all yeah I mean I think there's different experiences with gender and being autistic obviously but um yeah for me it was very there were like separate processes to kind of think about um like it it's like once I kind of understood being autistic it's like my brain had to deal with that stuff before I could even think about gender um and then realize like oh yeah I've always been like this and there was just never a word for it and like Mm. because I was autistic I didn't I'm not sure if it's that I didn't notice other people or that I didn't care I think Mm. it was a little bit of both I just didn't care what people thought yeah um when I like wore like you know quote boys clothes or whatever and also like I grew up with two brothers Mm-hmm. And so it was like, why can't I yeah, do that? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so like to me, and it's also the fact that honestly in our society, like it, like people assigned female at birth are given more leeway in how they can dress. And yeah. so like it's easy, it was easier for me to quote be a tomboy growing mm-hmm. up than it mm-hmm. was if I was assigned male at birth and like people, they wanted to wear like dresses or something. Yeah. Um, and so I definitely think that was part of it. But yeah, I mean, people have different experiences with being autistic and gender. For me, I think it was that, like, I just didn't, for me being autistic, it was like, I already had so much societal stuff to deal with that mm. that was like the last straw for me. Like, gender was like, I'm like, I'm not wearing a dress. <laughs> like, that's too much. I already have to pretend to be a human being when I go outside. I'm not going to, like, pretend to be this, that I'm this thing that I'm not, even yeah. if I didn't have like, a label at the time. Um, yeah. Oh, and I wanted to go back to what you were talking about with yeah. media mm. because I had an because it I agree that it makes uh like there's like one type of an autistic person that people think of a lot of times. Um, I went I had a surgery at a hospital and I actually got accommodations and I told them I was autistic and they were very nice and very supportive, but they didn't understand that I was a different autistic person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. When I was in the hospital, they actually, they were going to turn the fluorescent lights off in the room because they were like, oh, well, you know, most, they were like, oh, yeah, I thought I heard that, you know, autistic people don't like that or something. And I was like, actually, I have a sleep disorder. So I really appreciate if the lights were on. (laughs) Mm. And she like turned one panel of the lights off and then left the room. And it's just like, I'm a different person. (laughs) Like, they're not, we're not all the same. We have different needs. Like, not everyone's sensitive to sound like I am. Not everyone's sensitive to light. And some people are, like, the opposite, and they need, like, you know, proprioceptive feedback or they need to listen to loud music to, like, drown out other sounds or something. Like, it's Mm -hmm. not... So, like, there is, like, very much one type of autistic person that is in media and people will base their... I've said this before, Ira. Um, Many people, because I am... I'm not the kind of disabled person that wants pity from other people. Like I'm not, I don't, I don't want you to, I don't want you to feel sorry for me because I don't feel sorry for me. But so because I don't want people to feel sorry for me, they automatically want to, want to talk to me about the, uh, 
Paralympics that I'm entering. And I'm like, I don't do that either. I just had a pizza for my dinner. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not like, there's no way I'm getting up early tomorrow to go down and like swim 50 lengths. So, you know, people, they automatically assume that if you don't want pity, then we must be inspirational Paralympians. Because I'm in a wheelchair, like, no? Yeah, it is. It's, um, it's amazing, really. That it is that kind of that one or the other, isn't it? That you see, um, you either see in you know on TV, it's the incredibly high functioning person with autism who can't handle any any kind of social interaction and is also you know a like Mensa level genius, or it's the complete other side of it, and it's somebody who you know is has difficulty, you know managing their own behaviors and gets inappropriately close and and i think that this uh, this is this is part of the reason why i wanted to do a week about autism is because i have a couple of friends who have had um those got those diagnoses similar to you a bit later in life and there has been an element of 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 course that you know actually that fits i can appreciate that now but i think it's also quite dangerous to do that because I then you know I don't want to put the expectations that I've got on the experiences that I've got with people with autism or even the experience that I have of one friend who has got autism over the experience that I have with another friend who's got autism because they're entirely different and you wouldn't you wouldn't do that with any you know neurotypical person you wouldn't say oh well because Ben's a man, he's going to be exactly the same as James. It's it's, it's not it's not that no. straightforward. And you know, I think that that was, as I say, one of the reasons why I wanted to sort of do this week was to kind of go was to show the variety of experiences of of autism and how the. I mean, it's it's the thing we say we've said about all sorts of disabilities. We say time and time again is just to ask what a person's needs are. You know, because everybody's <laughs> needs are different. The number, the number of uh, questions about how do we, how do I deal with uh, this autistic person or something, and the, and it's like all these autistic people giving advice, and they're like, well, have you yeah. asked the yeah. autistic yeah, person yeah. yet? Like, have they? And also, they'll be like, oh, well, you know, they, they don't, they can't speak, and it's like, okay, well, can they point? Like, can they hold your hand and like drag you to like what they need? Because like, there's communication without speaking we do it all the time and neurotypical people love talking about how how there's 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 nonverbal communication right but then like if an autistic person doesn't speak it's like yeah. what do we do yeah. <laughs> oh my god yeah. how are we gonna speak yeah it's like kind of panic 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 the power of just getting to know somebody and spending some time with somebody that's you know for even for neurotypical people like i, I mean slightly sort of different experience for me because of my visual impairment I'm, my understanding of, it's not that I don't understand body language or process it in the same yeah. way I just don't see it so there is an element of you know for for me definitely getting to know a person means I'm much more able to read their non-verbal communication because you yeah. just know them better and but then that isn't that is the same with everybody if you spend some time getting to yeah. know someone before before saying oh well they they I, how can i possibly understand them if they can't speak uh, and it's the it's the classic it's the classic thing of just you know the people assuming that 
we are stupid and so i get a lot of does she take sugar or how or how old is mm. she talking about me to the person i'm with and my friends will go ask ask yourself she, she can she can tell you at length probably um you know uh, exactly how I want my cup of tea and it's you just think to yourself if you took a little bit of time just to get to know me and sort of even not I'm not even like knowing about all about me just having a general just being a basic human being and having a generalized chat about stuff rather than sort of standing in a corner thinking oh my god I can't I can't I can't speak to them just in case I say something wrong and because, you know, I, I can guarantee I've heard it all. Do you know what I mean? And, and nothing, I don't get easily offended. So I do think there is, yeah, it's like Alice said, just getting to know somebody and, and being brave enough to say, hello, is, you know, if you can do that, it's the first of many steps. You know what I mean? It's um, it's quite it's quite funny, really, watching, pe watching people. I can remember my, my sister brought home a, a friend for uh, after school for like dinner they had dinner at our house and he had never met me before he knew of me because my sister had said oh my my sister has got cerebral palsy she's in a wheelchair and i came downstairs in the lift and he was stood with his back against the patio door and his eyes widened and he wouldn't say a word and i was like you are there you are there and he's like yeah 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 and he, but he looked petrified for the whole dinner just sort of looking at me like oh my god what do i what do i do how do i how do i act and i was just like it's fine it's absolutely everything's fine yeah have you found since getting a later diagnosis that you've had those kind of experiences that people you knew previously or you know that people have have behaved differently now that you're kind of able to to say this is um... this is my diagnosis I mean, honestly, I I haven't disclosed to a lot of people in my life, like, mm -hmm. aside from, like, being online and, like, talking about it on social media and stuff. I mean, people probably know, but, like, it's not something I just go out and talk about. So sure. unless it comes up, like I said, like, my advisor's, like, really supportive, and so I did tell her about it, but, like, it didn't really change what she was doing because she was already really supportive of me. Mm. So, like, that I, that's the only reason the people I disclose to are people who generally already kind of understand me okay. um, because I know that if I tell someone who doesn't understand me, they might use stereotypes of autism to either like think I can't do my job or my work or something um, mm. or like even get even more upset or something by, by how I, how I, where I look and like how I talk. Yeah. Um, and like use it against me, you know? And I haven't had any most many negative experiences because I don't disclose to a lot of people. Um, but also when I do, I still get the like, you're very high functioning kind of thing. So it's almost like a I'm not gonna take that into account mm. more than it is like um undermining me or thinking yeah, I'm not yeah. competent. Mm. Because they're like, Oh well you talk and you're expressive and you do X, Y, and Z, so you don't seem really autistic, quote unquote. Um, <laughs> so that's why I generally don't um, disclose to a lot of people. Although I did, I did get into a an argument when autism is brought up. I will yeah talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, so there is someone who is talking about how autism is a quote boys disorder, 
and there's a lot of people who like talking about autism who work with autistic people and if they work with autistic people who have high support needs they think like they kind of get the they assumption think, that yeah. that's the only kind of they think they know it all right and, it, and so i may have gone on like a 10 minute rant about <laughs> like <that laughs> differences between like girls and boys and the fact that like women are like not diagnosed because of the diagnostic yeah. criteria and functioning labels and so um yeah i haven't had any super terrible experiences but again i still got the like oh well you're really high functioning so you don't count kind of response and that's that uh cued my 10 minute rant to that person do you think <laughs> your choice not to disclose m means that you're masking more or do yeah, you um, yeah yeah I would say yes, but also, even if I did disclose, I would probably feel like I should mask even more mm. because I don't want them to, like, make assumptions based on mm. me being autistic, which is kind of frustrating. I don't know. I haven't I haven't had a lot of opportunities because I wasn't officially diagnosed when I had classes, and so mm. that was, I really would have liked to disclose when I had that class and I said, you know, this is anxiety inducing. I would have liked to have been able yeah. to explain it. And I didn't feel like I had the right to because I didn't have an official diagnosis. Yeah. And I realized now that like that's totally bullcrap and you should be able to say these are my needs if you have them. And also, um, I wanted to bring this up earlier when we talked about you were talking about how you would never come. Um, Al Alice was talking about how you would never compare like a man to another man and be like, oh, they're the same person. Well, with autism, like with being autistic, like we do this to people of color yeah. oh, all yeah. of the time because autism is white yeah. as hell. Like mm -hmm. the whitest thing, like everyone on TV is white. Yeah. Most of the researchers who research autism are white. Most of the autistic people who get boosted are white, um, like in terms of like voices. And so yeah. it's really important to like acknowledge that and the fact that like cultural differences and stuff play a huge role in like diagnostic criteria and mm. even like someone will just be like oh well you can't be autistic because that's like a white person you know condition yeah. and that's a huge problem i think as well it's very important to say at this point where we've just brought up you know the issue of race and disability in general i've seen in recent months since the whole black lives matter movement has really started to gain some traction there have been instances where some disabled people have said, well, I, you know, it's almost like, well, I've got enough to deal with, you know, uh, you know, I'm disabled and all this kind of thing. And, and actually, I think it needs to be recognized that a lot of the disability movement, particularly in America, um, has been boosted really by people of, of color. If you look back in the history of, yeah. of disability rights yeah. and things having you know it's almost like that solidarity between the two sort of minority groups were like yeah no okay we understand let me help let me help and how can we boost your your profile and get your message across has been really helped by yeah. people of color absolutely well and and the black lives matter movement you know it's particularly pertinent to raise in this episode because actually there are lots of um, you know, autistic people Ooh. of colour in America who experience a great deal of police yep. brutality because of their autism. They have difficulties with kind of managing the arrest process and the incarceration process. And 
and people who are just because of their autism it means that they present and behave yeah. differently in certain social situations that people are getting you know the police called on them simply because they are an autistic person they are a person of color behaving in a socially unacceptable way yeah and it's important to acknowledge that um their autistic people of color can't can't put down yeah. their mask no. like like it's like dangerous for them to do that mm-hmm. um, and any point, like when you're out in public and they don't have that option and that makes their mental health probably significantly worse and like it compounds everything about being autistic in this world. <laughs> so it's important to acknowledge that like they can't, like even though we're, we're talking about like masking and mental health and how it's important to like find your identity and like, you know, reduce your masking or whatever, like people literally no. can't do that yeah. because their lives are at risk. <laughs> Yeah, it's I mean, it's it's ridiculous because on the one hand, you know, masking is for lots of autistic people is it's a pain. It's something that they have to do to feel as though they they sort of fit in and are not, um, you know, don't experience prejudice and things like that. But actually, it's almost having this conversation, you can almost say, well, it's a luxury. Some people don't have is that, you know, to be able to go. I'm not going to mask. I'm not going to hide this element of myself because, yeah, if I don't, I'm going to get shot by police. It's an issue in this country. It's not an issue to the same level that it is in America because gun violence is not um, too, you know, prevalent in the same way that it is for you guys. So, <laughs> but it's, you know, it's something that I really want to talk about, and and that that intersection between disability and ethnicity, I also think is is something that's really it's not addressed in across a lot of different kinds of disability disability is a white middle class problem and actually it's not it's, because it's, anybody yeah. at any age from any class and background can become disabled can be born you know give birth to somebody with a disability that's usually my line alice but yes <laughs> <laughs> sorry Luce. i'll let you off this time i'd also highly recommend following um amani yeah. barbarin on she's brilliant who's a yeah she's amazing and she talks about the intersectionality of being black and um having a disability and being mm-hmm. disabled um and i just learned a lot from like following her and like a lot of um disabled people of color and their experiences i think that's ultimately the um that's kind of what we're trying to achieve with this um show is you know lots of people do live in their own bubble and it is it is hard to comprehend and understand other people's experiences so following people on twitter who talk about it and listening to shows like ours where people come on and talk about their experience, you know, plug, 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 <laughs> um, is, is going to make you understand and perhaps think differently than, you know, just kind of ignoring it, carrying on in your lives or just sticking with what mainstream media is telling you. Yeah, it's easy to ignore because our feeds, like social media is not meant for you to see different viewpoints, right? So it's easy to be like, like when I first, I think when I first looked at social media on Twitter and stuff, I was finding mostly like autistic, like white women to Mm -hmm. follow. And I didn't like reach like the wider disability community on Twitter for a, a while until like I started seeing more posts about it. And so it's really 
to ignore it, which is why it's important to like actually seek out voices that like are not in like your demographic yeah. of people. Basically, it's getting out of your comfort zone, isn't it? Really, and thinking, okay, I don't know much about this, but let's let's try and see if I can follow somebody who can show me. Really, not necessarily educate, but you know, it's making that leap, isn't it? From going, yeah, all my mates are in a you know in a wheelchair. Let's like all their posts and stuff, and then then actually going actually. I would like to hear it's it's we need disrupting the algorithm isn't it really and and do it making a conscious decision to do that as well I think it's very important I think you also need to have a level of empathy and yeah, humanity absolutely. that there are certain people uh in the world who just simply don't have that and I'm not alluding to you know people with neurodiversity because people with neurodiversity do of course feel you know, and, and understand that other people feel. Uh, I'm talking more about people like yeah. Trump who don't understand that other people exist or have rights or, um, but let's not, let, let's let, not go down that. Don't, don't ruin my <laughs> right, Alice, please. <laughs> um, so as we said, sort of at the top, Ira, we uh, have been giving sort of people who come on the opportunity uh, this week if there's a particular topic or anything that they really kind of want to drive home and I know we've touched on a, a lot of things already um, in this recording so we may might have covered it but was there anything you know if you could really champion something if you could give a message to people to be like you know if you walk away from this knowing any one thing what would it be? I actually did want to talk about how there's this push now to create a diagnostic assessment for um, autism for specifically like females, mm -hmm. <laughs> like the female mm -hmm. autism yeah. phenotype. Um, and I wanted to mention that like, <laughs> it basically the, like even the research is currently happening when we know that there's autistic people who fit outside of the boxes of white cis man and white cis woman, like, they're just kind of adding more boxes instead mm -hmm. of realizing that the boxes are the problem yeah. in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, and by gendering, like they're creating this idea of autism as, oh, this is women's autism and this mm -hmm. is men's autism. And it's not that they're two different types of autism. It's that we have different social pressures. Like, like people who grow up and are raised as girls have different social pressures than people who are raised as boys. Mm -hmm. um, and it also just negates all of like the trans and non-binary people as well as like people of color because the research is still based on white women. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's just important to acknowledge that like not everyone has resources for an official diagnosis. Not everyone can get a referral because of the way diagnostic systems have been set up and the way research is set up. And the fact that it's just based on this one assessment that they use for research is based on um autistic cis white boys who yeah. didn't mask right so yeah. they're not even getting all of the autistic cis white boys they're getting some of them that quote unquote look severe or don't mask mm. um so it's important to acknowledge that like self-diagnosis is valid if you're listening to this and you're an autistic person you're like i don't know what to do and you had a run-in with a doctor who didn't refer you like you're probably autistic. <laughs> like if you've done research for six months and read a bunch of books from by autistic people and relate to it, you're probably autistic. It's just kind of how it works. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I just wanted to acknowledge that and... No, I think it's a really important point to make, because, especially, you know, the idea of, of barriers to diagnoses, because barriers to diagnoses ultimately leads to barriers to support people. If exactly. It's so difficult to get any kind of support. I mean, you know, in this country, we have social services in the NHS. But even then, if you don't have a formal diagnosis, you're not going to get support from any free services, which means you're turning around relying on your own financial you know backing and if you've already got a disability or difficulty that means maybe you find it hard to hold down a job then it's you know it's just going to perpetuate and you're going to end up with even more problems and so then instead of being you know a person of color with a neurodiversity you end up being a person of color who is on welfare benefits who has to live on the street or whatever it is because the the failure of the system to recognize your it's it's that multiple um sort of elements of identity isn't it it's just just a fundamental failure of the system and and it's really hard because i understand that there do need to be guidelines in place within these kind of systems for people to be able to accurately kind of diagnose and signpost and you know you do meet particularly lots of um chronically ill people we talk to we have a historian who comes on regularly who's got chronic illness and she found it really hard to get the appropriate diagnosis and was diagnosed with different things before she eventually got diagnosed with eds and that you know those having those diagnostic criteria i do from a medical perspective and a professional perspective i do absolutely understand why they're there, but they're not they're not doing their job. They're making things worse. They're making things harder for the people who are already, you know, in a vulnerable situation. Because if they weren't in a vulnerable situation, they wouldn't be going, Can I get some help with this? And in the US, um, insurance often doesn't cover an autism assessment for anyone, depending on the state, for mm. anyone over eighteen or twenty one years old. Because yeah. they assume that if you're autistic, you will get diagnosed as a child. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, so, yeah. So it yeah. also costs, like, I mean, there are people who have paid $3,000 to get an official diagnosis of autism Jesus. as an adult. Jesus. So, like, within, because insurance doesn't cover it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been working with somebody who, um, upon turning 18, was just summarily dumped out of child services and he also had mental health issues alongside his autism and adult services were like well we can't support you you've got autism we don't have the specialist therapies to be able to support somebody with autism who's also experienced trauma that is a huge problem yeah so he's going well i'm too old for child services you offer this service within child services you don't offer it to adults I mean, most people spend more of their time as an adult as than they do as a child. You'd expect the services there to be more sort of thorough than they are. In my experience, because I obviously have had cerebral palsy right from the get-go, um, it just suddenly didn't arrive and go, I'm going to sit with you for the rest of your life. Um, <laughs> you didn't notice you couldn't walk for the first 12 years of your life you're just going around and suddenly like oh um, but yeah so i i have been a 
child with cerebral palsy and then when I got to the age of 18 I left school and then everything all together everything stopped overnight it's like somebody flicked a switch kicked their fingers and everything so like I had to fight for support when I was at university I had to you know and it's just it's when you're 18 and you're just about to set out on your life and everything, you're up until that point, everything's going swimmingly. And then all of a sudden they go, and you're going to leave school now and like, pull the plug. And if you're not careful, if you, you know, I'm very lucky. I've got family and friends around me that are very supportive and, and I will, I will always find my corner. But there are people that I know who haven't got that, that family and friends network who, again, you free fall really until somebody goes, it's okay, we've got you. Um, and sometimes they don't yeah. get you. They don't catch. There's nobody there to catch yeah. you. See, my my experience because my condition is degenerative. You know, I didn't need anywhere near as much support when I was ten, yeah. fifteen, as I did by the time I was twenty and twenty five. But in terms of sight loss support, it is that kind of the expectation that you will be completely you're completely blind in childhood. Or you're fine until you're 65. Yeah. And there's a, there's a, you know, 50 years gap in there of just the assumption that all the people that, that within those 50 years, your site will be stable. You won't have any needs. Everything can be I think, fine. I think from my perspective, it's going back to that thing of, you know, everybody's looking at me in a wheelchair and thinking it's just your legs that don't work. But not really been any research into cerebral palsy as an adult really to be honest so there's lots of as as a kid there's lots of information to go off but as an adult it's a bit patchy and you kind of have to there's a lot of finding your own way i mean i know that i'm in a hell of a lot more pain than i was when i was 15 um but that's probably just aging um i don't know you, you have to worry like you have to you do have to think is it just is it just general aging? But without that research, you know, and the support from the system, it you you'll never know. It might just be your experience of aging, or it might be your cerebral palsy. But because you're just looking at you, and nobody else has sat down and looked at one hundred and fifty thousand other people with cerebral palsy and gone, oh, this is interesting. This correlates. Yeah. There's a lot of work. Really, I think it needs to be done across the board, you know, really, to be honest. Something that I noticed when you were talking about the sort of social media and blogging that you do, Ira, is I think you mentioned that a lot of a lot of the people out there asking questions are parents. And I think that's because there is a drive amongst the kind of the diagnostic system to diagnose people early, which is, you know, great. Get in there and get in the, the support in there as early as possible. But that does mean that anybody who begins to, you know, get to that age where they're able to go, I need to mask, I need to manage my social behaviours so that I fit in, they're suddenly not getting diagnosed. And so those people are then waiting until they're in their 20s and 30s and, you know, 40s and so on before they're going, oh, and, and you the impact that that will have been having on that person's life is that's the immeasurable bit. Yeah. And I wanted to go back to what you were talking about with mental health services. I actually helped moderate um, a Facebook group for autistic girls 
for like parents of autistic girls it included like you know autistic uh trans and non-binary kids too Mm. um but basically even if they had a diagnosis and this was a uk group even with cams they would say oh well your child's autistic and they so we can't treat them even though they have severe mental health problems and depression and anxiety because that's an autism thing that makes no sense to me at all yeah so with a diagnosis there are these autistic girls that go in there and they have severe mental health problems they they are they call you know people say school refusal but what that really means is they're in a mental health crisis and they cannot go to school And the school is not accommodating them or they're masking and they're not getting sensory supports or transition supports or anything. And so it's just like an absolute nightmare. And I don't understand, like, like being autistic doesn't make you not have mental health problems. (laughs) You wouldn't say to Lucy if she rocked up in the hospital in a wheelchair with a broken arm. You, you wouldn't go, oh, we can't treat you because you, you can't walk with your broken They'd arm. They'd probably do a lot of head scratching. And it's like, how, how, do we, how do we deal with this woman? But, yeah, they wouldn't just turn around and go, we're not going to treat you because your, your legs are wonky. Uh, just the one other thing I wanted to mention um, also is that, especially in the U.S., if you get an early diagnosis for your kid, um, a lot of people push um, ABA therapy, okay. which is based on gay conversion therapy. Oh, um, Jesus. Oh. This is not something I have heard of. Yeah, okay, that's why I wanted to mention it. So it was helped created by Ivar Lagas, who helped with the Feminine Boy Project, and he essentially tortured children. I'm sorry, I probably should have put a... Uh, yeah, well, we'll put a warning on that. We'll skip yeah. one at the beginning. <laughs> Don't worry. So, so he basically tortured children into making them, quote, less feminine and also helped create this therapy that is not really a therapy. It's just literally making kids mask. Uh, They will take away their toys and allow them toys when they do things like make eye contact and like comply to commands from a stranger. Oh my god. Um, but they they market it as like this therapy that will help your autistic kid. Like parents don't know about this, right? No. And they're like, oh, it's fun, and we play and we do activities, and the, they do this thing called pairing, and that's what the pairing part is. So they'll have fun with the kid, and then after that, they'll use the their favorite games to like reinforce like eye contact or like sitting still or doing you know very simple tasks that maybe the child's done over and over again for an entire day um so yeah it's really bad in simple terms that's like sticking a a, a very itchy jumper on and saying don't scratch isn't it really to be fair exactly i mean exactly they they don't take into account sensory sensitivities at all and they just ask the child to suppress their pain like i did growing up when i didn't know i was autistic and i did that to myself because i thought everyone did that it's it's like saying here alice you can have this piece of cake if you can read this newspaper (laughs) and it's like but i physically can't read the newspaper and i want the cake it's just Uh, absolutely like i think this is one of the things that really that I, i i can never get my head around is the way people cannot grasp cognitive and you know cognitive difference and and mental impairments and illnesses are just the same yeah. 
as a physical or sensory impairment and you just that i my mind is blown right now i just wanted to mention they've also done this with kids with cerebral palsy to like force them to use their weak side to try to like develop skills when it causes them pain so like this is done with many yeah. different disabilities and it's not okay for any of disabled kids you see it with physiotherapy quite a lot isn't there that kind of forcing you to use the thing that hurts and then you're you're considered weak. You're the one who's punished because you go, I can't do that. I would, I would just like to point out that if my physiotherapist is listening, we're not talking about you. Um, <laughs> uh, but no, I mean, back in the thing, like the First World War was down, you know, all responsibility, most of the responsibility for the First World War was down to some Kaiser that was a cousin of Queen Victoria's or something or I don't know exactly. We need to get the historian on to like Kaiser yeah, Wilhelm. He had, yeah, that's the one. He had yeah. um, a weak arm down one side, and the royal family were just so disgusted about this weak arm situation. They were giving him electric shocks and tying metal metal uh, cages to his head to make him stand up straight and stuff. And so it's the same sort of thing. Well, and so... when you consider what you know, what the royals are expected to do, just you just yeah, use the other arm exactly. to wave. <laughs> Like, <laughs> there was lots of sort of like um when they took pictures of him they were like hiding his arm so like he was stood oh, next to a rocking horse with his his arm hidden and stuff and it's um you can kind of go well I, I can kind of see why he had a bit of a he had issues because you're constantly giving him electric shocks in his weak arm and that kind of thing it's it's, it's ridiculous that you know that that was the 1900s and that's how they were treating people with and yet we are still using the same kind of barbaric so-called treatment oh, yes. for illnesses so and disabilities. I wanted to mention about electric shocks and again this I'm gonna say a trigger warning now for the <laughs> recording um about this because I want to mention the Judge Rottenberg Center okay um, and this center has been in it's I'm not sure if it they've stopped doing it but the FDA just this last year has banned an electric shock device that they used and they had backpacks on oh. autistic adults and children oh. as well as as well as like people with intellectual disability in their center and the ABA um, board never spoke out against this practice and it was created by Ivar Lavas who made these backpacks and that's why it was grandfathered into the FDA so that it was already approved as a design and that's the only reason they were allowed to use it and it took so many disability activists and people working behind the scenes to get this banned and they just I think they just stopped, had to stop using it like last summer or something that's um, that's yeah it's, it's abhorrent that is um Oh, oh god. my god! I'm sorry. That's really no, that's no, just, no. It's um no, no. <laughs> it's important, as I think, to to talk about these things and raise these things as issues because, you know, you hear about things like that and you you think, well, you know, nobody will have been doing anything like that since the mid sixties. It's 2021. Yeah, that's how dehumanized autistic people are in uh especially in the u.s i guess i don't know it's in the u.s mm, i i i can remember when i was a teenager and we had 
a pet dog who used to bark whenever anybody walked past the end of the driveway. And I remember going on the internet to be, to be like, what can I do? Because people walk past, it was, you know, we lived on a busy street, people were walking past at four o'clock in the morning and he was just barking like and you'd you'd have to get up and calm him down you'd have to show him the front door show him there was nobody there and I can remember reading that you know you can get shock collars and you can even you can get get these dog collars that spray an unpleasant smell up your dog's nose basically when they bark and I was like that's awful all the dog's doing is barking and you want me to spray a bad smell up their nose never mind an electric collar never mind an electric collar on a human being it's just horrific have we slipped into some kind of alternative universe where the nazis won (laughs) is that happened and i just didn't know because i can't i cannot comprehend how we could live in a so-called democracy you know and oh jesus fucking christ (laughs) Um, i also i just want to if anyone is interested in learning more about aba after this podcast and how um abusive it is and traumatizing it is feel free to check out the neuroclastic website and if you just type in aba in the search bar you will find many articles about people's experiences and why it's not good and and we will put all of this on our sources on our website guys maybe therapists will tell you that there's good aba now and it has changed and it may look okay but the methods they're using is still like forcing an autistic person to mask like even if it looks like they're enjoying their you know sticker they got or whatever you know it's like just because that autistic person looks happy doesn't mean what is going on is okay you don't need to be treated if you have autism autism is not an infection that's going to kill you autism is a different way Alice, you don't need to be treated if you've got a disability full stop like do you know what i mean it's like it shouldn't be something that people are ashamed of i mean and uh, no i'm just for once i'm lost the words (laughs) i i know and it's like i've been i had my covid vaccine and i've been talking to people and there are people on the internet and i know there was a you know, there there was a whole generation of people where parents were convinced that um, the mumps, measles and rubella jab gave their kids autism. And it's, it's just, for me, I would almost say to these people who were like, well, I don't want the COVID jab because we don't know the impact it's going to have on, you know, fertility and pregnancy and things like that. And you sort of want to, why are you so worried about your child having autism? Like, just because your child's got autism, does that mean they can't live mm. a fulfilled life? People just don't understand what it is, still, honestly. Like, they don't, mm. they don't know autistic people, right? They see the people in, in media, the actor, like neurotypical actors playing autistic people. Yeah. And that's what they base things off of. And they probably do know autistic people. There are probably, sure. you oh, know, yes, absolutely. We don't know that there are autistic. They don't. They don't know. They know somebody who is autistic, but they do. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, this has been a really fascinating chat. Um, is there any? Where can everybody find you online? Um, you know, to follow you. Oh sure. My, 
Um, my blog is um, autisticscienceperson.com, um, and you can follow me on Twitter at aut, um, at aut sci person. Just if you type in autistic science person, okay. I'll come up. And I'm also autistic science person on Facebook Fabulous. as well. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Ira. Um, it's been really really interesting and uh, eye-opening to talk to you so thank you so much yeah thank you for having me on and having your saturday <laughs> evening talking about sad things i'm, fine. I'm, sorry I'm gonna go and eat some chocolate now it's fine <laughs> well i've i've got leftover I'm pizza in. for my tea and there's gin so i'll be fine <laughs> i'm gonna go and get myself gin now while i think about it so Probably still a bit early for you, I'm afraid. <laughs> Have one later and think of us. <laughs> Thank you very much, Ira. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Labelled Podcast. If you like the show, please rate, review and subscribe. You can follow us on social media at Labelled Podcast. Our thanks go to our editor, Adam Hall, our music composer, Maisie Crunden, and our graphic designer, Sarah Coley. We'll, we'll see, see you next time. time.